Welcome back to Jessica and Carla's high school reunion. Today's guest is Jonah Mendelson, who called himself Scott until he was bar mitzvahed 10 years ago and had the opportunity to choose a new name. Jonah went to Vassar for college and is now an actor, singer, and writer based in New York City. Although it took Jonah some time to find himself, the seeds of who he is now were planted in high school in theater, music, reading, and writing. In the last decade, Jonah has gotten married, launched a theater company, and begun a Feldenkrais practice. We loved hearing about Jonah's journey, and we know you will appreciate the mantra that has helped him have the courage to pursue his dreams. The world is a much weirder and gentler place than it is in my imagination. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to my very busy and crazy, hectic life. We're getting ready for our What's the Future event, our WTF event. My living room looks like I'm throwing a party for all eternity, which is a little bit what it's felt like. (laughs) Yeah, that's been a big project for you to get ready for. I love the name. Yeah. (laughs) The WTF. WTF. That's right. I know. A lot of people... We've actually had people say, WTF, take me off your mailing list. No way. (laughs) Yeah. That's hilarious. And if people don't have a sense of humor, there's nothing I can help them with. (laughs) I think that's a good rule of thumb. If you can't laugh at yourself and at the world, you're not going to get very far. And you know, there are a lot of other words that start with the letter F. Exactly. Than the one he's speaking of. Exactly. <laughs> right. How um, are you? I'm doing well. I'm back in Austin getting some things done this week. My daughter Leah moves back here from her dad's tonight, and I'm looking forward to seeing her. It's been a couple weeks, which is a long stretch for us. So it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Well, today we have Jonah. Scott Mendelson. Yep. We'll have to ask him about that because we all knew him as Scott. And I have to say, <laughs> I had a whole new, I've always liked Scott, but I had a whole new appreciation for him after our last reunion when at your house, he brought all those poems from the literary magazine from 1989. Mm-hmm. I love that. His so delivery much. of the poetry was. Oh. Absolutely. Inspiring. (laughs) It was so great. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with Scott in high school, um, or Jonah, as he's going by now. I spent a lot of time with Jonah in high school, partly because of the literary magazine. We were on the literary magazine staff together, and then through theater, which, of course, he's very involved with now. Right. Um, But we spent time in theater classes and theater productions and... um, I'm really excited to hear what he's doing now. Yeah. Yeah. He is so sweet. He is just a love. I can't 
remember if he is a full-time actor. Is that what he's doing? We'll have to ask him we'll about have to that. Ask. Yeah. He's still adapting works and performing and I know he was in Santa Fe recently doing a production. I just remember him being very sort of silly and friendly and um, outgoing. A really kind person too. Totally. So yeah, I'm living in New York now, I believe. He will he will undoubtedly um, give us lots of good info. And, you know, that's been the fun thing about these podcasts, which we've been able to fill in all the details that you can't get in a Facebook post or a series of Facebook posts. We also get the stuff that maybe you don't want to share on Facebook, but for some reason, maybe in a conversation, you're more willing to put it out there, which has been really fun. Yeah. I think that um, it's been interesting to hear how people think about their own stories. And there are times when I've wanted to probe more. I think I've come to, believe that the most valuable thing that we're doing in these podcasts is letting people tell their stories in the way they want to tell them. And I view this as a way for us to all build relationship so that you can mm -hmm. keep having more conversations and some of those will be more challenging right. conversations. But when you haven't really connected yeah. with people in decades, it's just really cool to hear their own reflections on what they're doing now and how they've evolved. We want them to come and share with us what they want to share, not what we want them to share. That's right. <laughs> oh, look at this. Hello. Hi there. Hey. <laughs> Jonah, it's good to see you. We are so you. happy. And look at us all in our glasses. We all look so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's my little reading glasses, yeah. little readers. And we're just coming from the polls. Is that true? I am. Nice. I just voted today. Voting for, using democracy while I still can. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. No, it's okay. I'm a sunny guy with a dark side. I, I don't know if that was clear in high school, but it's definitely true now. Before we get started, I would love to remind our listeners that you are going by Jonah now. Yes. And actually, the lovely thing is that that immediately gives me some shape for what stories am I telling. That like right there structures a whole lot of it. So great. Well, yes. um, Jonah, let's get going. You know, okay. from listening to this podcast, perhaps. Have you listened to any episodes yet? I've listened to all of them. Congratulations. You're one of like a half a dozen people with that uh, honor. <laughs> no. no, I'm just oh, kidding. Um, I'm addicted. Terrific. Well then, well, then you know, we always start with the same question, which is what have you been doing for the last 35 years? So for the last 35 years, I have been figuring out how to do what I actually mm -hmm. knew I wanted to do in high school but didn't have the guts to really pursue it full on. Um, so I am, uh, I'm now, I, I'm now acting and singing professionally. I started a theater company. Um, I'm producing a one man show um, and uh, figuring out how to turn myself into mm -hmm. a, a self producer 
I've been, you know, it's it's all fundable, and now I actually have to get it funded because <laughs> I've tapped myself out. <laughs> um, but, um, and it's not been a straight path. I took ten years off from performing to uh, uh, earn some money, do some therapy, have a bar mitzvah in my forties, meet my husband, <laughs> um, get my act together. Uh, and then after ten and, and do some interesting other work, but then I hit this wall and it was like it's time to go back and do what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, maybe maybe we can go back a little bit, but take us back to the graduation, you know, high school graduation, and where you went from there, and maybe take us through some of the big inflection points that were part of your journey. So. There are like three things that I know about myself and the rest I have had no clue about. One is that um, like in high school, I was very cut off from myself. I was like, go along, get along guy, smart enough that I like was fine academically. Um, one of the big surprises actually back in high school was when we were seniors and we had our last thespian society banquet. I was shocked to find that I had the most thespian points of anyone in our class, more than Mark Tafoya, more than the usual suspects who you think of as the big theater theater folk. But that's how I remember middle school and high school and put my life in order is what play was I doing, whether it was backstage or uh, appearing as an astrologer in the backyard of all my sons with you, Jessica. We were married in high school. It was a tragedy. Not our relationship, but the play was. <laughs> That's right. No, we were the comic relief. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Um, and uh, so it was just kind of a surprise because home was a mess. My parents divorced when I was 15. Um, and then, you know, let's talk about the fact that. Um, I got to college and blew the doors off the closet as gay, but had this really repressive wall all through middle school and high school. In fact, years later, I remembered that I would be at home playing piano from this movie themes book I had and had the theme from Love Story in it. How long does it last? Can love be measured? And I would completely unconsciously at the top of my lungs change all the she's to he's but was completely cut off from any sense of myself in terms of dating or any of that. So I was like really, and even with, with, um, with theater, I knew I wanted to be acting, but I, I just had to protect myself. I was like, oh, if somebody wants, I won't compete for it. If somebody wants the role more than me, then I'll just back off. So I wasn't hungry and putting myself mm -hmm. out there the way some folks were, um, mm -hmm. but I was always there. Um, and, and then the next thing that I knew, so, so I knew that I wanted to go to Vassar as soon as my eyes landed mm. on the view book, I was like, I'm going there. It was totally irrational. It was just this gut feeling. Now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, it's, it was, uh, the mm -hmm. women's college that would accept me. It's a place where I can figure mm -hmm. out how to be a non-traditional mm -hmm. guy. Um, but it was completely on this mm -hmm. nonverbal level. And like people were trying to talk to me, but my dad tried to get me go to somewhere that 
wasn't asking for a divorced separated parents form mm -hmm. on the financial aid because it would have been cheaper. And I just mm -hmm. dug in my heels. I'm going to Vassar. And then when I graduated, I just mm. came to New York. Did you major in theater in college? Okay. I did not. I majored in English. Okay. And I minored in women's studies. Um, and I was, I mean, I, I blew the doors off the closet. I was like super queer on <laughs> campus with my buttons. And um, it's so funny. If, do you remember in Living Color, Jim Carrey played this openly gay guy? <laughs> Like he's in line at Burger King. Oh my gosh, it's so fun. He's like in line at Burger King. And he's like, hi, I'm gay. Does that bother you? Do you mind selling a Whopper to an openly gay man? He's like making a fuss. And it's like, I saw it like senior year of college. He's like, oh my God, that was me. I was so obnoxious. Oh, it was ridiculous. But I kind of got it out of my system in college. Like I read all the gay novels and I took all the gay studies classes and it was gay, 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 because it was easier to be publicly gay and right. change the world than to sit in my dorm room by myself and deal with my feelings. That was, it was that was the I thing. Mean, I don't think it's, you know, for, for different people, it's easier or harder to go through those identity, um, those questions of identity, right? But I just am thinking back to my own college experience, and it was harder to come out then, I think, than it is today. It was, although, I mean, Vassar had been a women's college. It had a reputation of being a good place to be gay in the 70s. There were gay studies classes when I got there. I was there right at the line where coming out and being gay went from being something that you did as a refugee you'd go to a bar or whatever to being in a college mm -hmm. that was institutionalizing it um, in fact second semester of my first year of college there was this president's committee on gay lesbian and bisexual concerns that was looking at how do we be inclusive mm -hmm. at the college and as a first year student i ended up on that committee um, i was um I, you know, we were looking at policies. They created a, a gay student center in the basement of one of the dorms. I was, uh, my work study job senior year was as the intern for the gay student center. Um, so uh, I was at sort of that pivot point. Um, I was also there when Vassar was forming its Lesbian and Gay Alumni Association. So in some ways, you know, it was certainly pre-Ellen mm -hmm. and pre-Will and Grace. We were the generation that was reclaiming the word queer, saying if we use the word queer. And in the Alumni Association, older alums were really uncomfortable with that. Um, so I was on, on that side of that discussion then. So it wasn't, it wasn't as hard as mm -hmm. it would have been even a few years before that. The other thing that was hard was, of course, it was 1989, 1990. And so the first thing when I'd say to people, you know, I think I might be, I might want to kiss mm -hmm. boys. Well, don't get oh, AIDS. Right. So I'm like barely dealing with myself at all. And now I've got mortality thrown in there and the prospect of discrimination. Um, so that was, AIDS that was really hard. Right. The late eighties, early nineties, it was terrifying. Terrifying. I mean, we just didn't know very much. And so I can imagine that um, that was really, that's tough timing. It was a lot. Um, but it was also, 
So I majored in English. I looked at the theater department, but it was in transition. I was like, there's a bunch of professors who needed to retire 10 years ago. So I landed in the English department. I thought I also had this real value of wanting to make a difference in the world, just to be of service in some way. Um, and I thought, what am I doing in the English department? I'm reading books. I mean, I love it. And then I took a class on AIDS and literature that a professor taught. And we read not just poems and memoirs, but we looked at the construction of the language. We looked at how it was talked about in the papers, how it influenced people's experience of the disease, how it influenced the science. Um, and also, and, and of course I thought, of course, where, if I wanna be in the mix in terms of making a difference in the world, where would I wanna be mm. but language? Um, and, uh, and it, it picked up some seeds that were planted at the academy. I remember um, in American history, Nancy Spencer included Adrian Rich's um, compulsory heterosexuality in the lesbian continuum is mm. one of our readings, which That's was bold. pretty damn bold, I think. And um, I read it and I was just like, oh. I just sort of filed it away because I'm in high school and I'm living with my family. I'm not dealing with this yet, but you know, Adrian Rich got under the skin. Um, and uh, also um, Miriam McClooney, both having for her for English and then uh, creative writing. And of mm -hmm. course, working on other voices together. Um, she just made this space that again, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't name it. My favorite definition of, definition of feminism is feminism is the radical idea that women are people. Mm -hmm. Radical. radical. Um, and of course, <laughs> totally radical. Well, right, like, right? Like mm -hmm. that there's a person behind the category. Um, and that gave me permission to say, oh, there's a person behind whatever category I'm fighting with. Um, and, and then the other thing is that growing up, I had this deep sense that I didn't deserve the good mm. things I had. I, I just, just rootless, kind of depressed. Actually in high school, I went through a severe depression senior year. Um, I remember getting, when Mickey cast me in Don't Drink the Water, in the Woody Allen role, in the lead, and he clearly picked it. It was like a good fit for me and it's a role I should have made a meal of. And I was so depressed because I was beginning to deal with my sexuality mm. and I couldn't learn my lines. Mm. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, and yet, it with these women teachers and these little seeds of feminism, I was like, there's a place for me to go. Um, so I got to college and was political and was, was very actively feminist. Uh, there's one ridiculous day where it was parents' day, but there'd been a take back the night march. Um, to, to make, make the night safe and speak up against sexual violence. And it happened, that happened Saturday night and Sunday was parents' day. So the um, staff was out there spraying the chalkings off, one woman in four, one in 10 men, no means no, they were spraying it off. So I went to my job in the Dean's office and borrowed sidewalk chalk and was out there in the bright morning. <laughs> Chalking it back. <laughs> and of course, security comes by and, and picks me up, takes me to the security office. 
And they say, what were you doing? Why were you doing that? And so I sat there and explained why one has take back the night and why one chalks and why it should be there for parents weekend. And, you know, the vaster security guy has seen it all. So he's sitting there. Okay. I respect that. I'm going to have to keep the chalk. I'm cutting you off. <laughs> so I fancied myself an activist in that college enthusiastic, ridiculous way. Here I am in one of the safest possible places for men and women to sort this out. And, you know, um, and, but when I moved to New York and I was, I was auditioning, I worked, was in a little, little theater company. I didn't go to grad school. I sort of was too picky about who I'd study with. And, um, when I audition, I'd book but I just didn't have a sense of myself. Like I'd, I'd book something and then I'd finish and I'd be broke and I'd fall apart for a while. I just mm -hmm. didn't have a ground, mm -hmm. a sense of self. Um, and also I think partly because of coming out in AIDS, having no, like feeling so, I was really conscious about having come from a broken home, but I can't tell anyone about it because we're at the academy. We're the privileged people. We have great classes. I can't, talk about the fact that I feel mm. lost. Um, and uh, so I would, I would hide in relationships, bad relationships, totally unavailable people imagining that that would fix things. Um, and about not too long after I really compulsively stayed way longer than anyone should. Um, eventually I was like, working a day job and auditioning when I wasn't falling apart. And I found my way into a 12 step program mm. for compulsive relationships. And that began to give me a space of mm. self-acceptance. I just knew that I was depressed and in pain and I would go to a meeting and I would mm -hmm. feel relief from that. And so I did that for many years and got some relief, but was still not really making change, still choosing the wrong person and staying with them. How do you describe a compulsive relationship? So I got to Vassar. I went to the first gay student meeting. I was one of two first year students who went to that first one. Usually people wait and sneak in later in the year, but we were there. I was ready to blow the doors off. I was, I was glad to like have space to be myself, but terrified mm -hmm. to be single or date. I was, um, I had no sense of myself. So if anyone showed interest in me, I was like, I'm not going to be able to say no. Um, and so the first person who asked me out, uh, I jumped right into a relationship because it was too scary to be on my own, to be single, to be dating, to be having sex as a 18 year old during 1990 AIDS. Um, so uh, I sort of just jumped right into a relationship and stayed in that relationship for eight years. Even though in the first few months, I was like, I'm not ready for this. I don't know how to be on my own. I'm at college. Like, surely there's some experimenting or some figuring out to, to but I just, okay. I just hid in it. It was safer to do that. And it wasn't a terrible relationship. I just wasn't ready. And then as we were graduating, we decided to break up and go our separate ways. And within a month after leaving, I just freaked mm -hmm. out and got back together long distance. So we stayed together for another four years. Um, but I knew that I, it, 
I wasn't present in it. I wasn't able to, I needed to figure out how to be on my own. And then when he left and it was finally time, he went to graduate school. I bought him a desk to go to graduate school. And then he left and then I looked at my apartment and I was like, I don't have a desk. I'm not going to graduate school. Mm -hmm. I had no mm -hmm. self to turn to. And I remember just sitting in my little Brooklyn apartment on my futon, just mm -hmm. moaning in pain. That's how little self I had. Um, and so 12 step began to be a place where I could begin to rebuild a sense of mm -hmm. self. I did some therapy on and off. Um, and I, I studied and I did what I, I'm an actor and I'm a singer that if I get up in the morning and start that my day works. I know that, you know what Mickey always said, if you can do anything besides be an actor, mm -hmm. I think Mark talked about this in his, uh, his interview. If you can do anything, but be an actor and be happy, go do it. And I am an actor. If I get up in the morning, life works. Doesn't matter how hard or broke I am, that's a place where it's so funny. There's this sort of weird paradox that um, by being in public and and part of it's having a mask and having words to speak, but there's something about the community that happens when somebody steps forward mm -hmm. and you let yourself be seen. And um, you need to have a self to do it, which is why I would like go do a gig and then come back and fall apart. Um, but there's something about community and being present together. So I'm, I'm muddling through, I have a job, I'm, I'm auditioning when I can, I'm going to 12 step and it helps somewhat. It gives me a, a place to go and be accepted, but I'm not quite make, I still haven't found me. And then I, um, I was at work in the village and went for a walk and was feeling really miserable and found myself walking into a church and sat in the pew and found myself praying. Mm -hmm. I was like, what is that? I don't pray. I had this sense that my dad is uh, Jewish, but walked away from his bar and sort of anti-religion. My mom is an wow. ex-nun, but also I had no religious upbringing. I had no extended family, none of those communal things mm. that often give you a sense of yourself. So I walk into this church and I find myself praying. And then I say, what mm -hmm. the F is that? I don't do this. But it was this really deep personal thing. And at that time, my voice teacher said, you need to be singing more. Go find a church job, a gig singing in a professional choir in a church. So I walked into a church to find a job and lo and behold, there's a community and there's this, there's liturgy and there's a place that I feel like, oh, I'm getting full relief, not just a mm -hmm. break from my worthlessness, but a sense mm -hmm. like, oh, I could be a whole person. So I immediately jumped in and joined a church for a while um, and uh, actually met my husband who's Jewish while I was going to church and he was just glad I had something spiritual. He was all supportive of that. Um, it was also at that time that I had my last bad relationship where I was like, I know I should leave and I couldn't quite do it. So we had kind of a messy breakup, but I was like, I don't have to do that again. I can make sure that I'm with someone who likes mm -hmm. me and is interested yeah. in me. And I dated one person who was a nice guy and it just wasn't happening. And then I met my husband. And it's like, oh, it's not supposed to be 
it's it takes work, but it's not supposed did you to be torture. <laughs> we met online. I'm gonna say it. We met on manhunt.com. <laughs> um, and we but we just chatted for a while. We didn't hook up. That of course was the other side of un relationships with unavailable people. Is that I also fooled around and messed around. It was not good. Never were the like romance and sex, and never the mm -hmm. twain would meet. And between beginning to like have a spiritual life, um, and then I met Andy, and we we just chatted. I was doing a show at the time, um, but we just chatted for a while, and then it was opening night of The Dark Knight, the Batman movie, and we're both big nerds. So I said, "Do you want to get off the stupid computer and like go to the theater? Your apartment is halfway to the movie theater in Queens, where we are." And it was the rest has been history. Um, we're, we're like huge Star Trek fans. He's a teacher. Um, and he's kind and he likes me as I am. I, I almost think as I'm starting my theater company and really pushing on the artistic stuff, I'm like, you're maybe a little too supportive. He's like happy for me all the time, even though like it's hard and it's hard work and getting things to add up. I'm like, I'm not there yet. And you're, you're just happy for me. It's like, and he's he's totally there for it and totally supportive. That's so sweet. Um, but to go from <laughs> it's so sweet. But to go from this place where I don't deserve the education we had, I don't deserve the good clothes I have, to a place where somebody just likes me as I am. And then I um a new voice teacher had me sing in the high holiday choir at a synagogue. And church was kind of working kind of not like the message that jesus has accomplished salvation i was like no we have work to do <laughs> we got work to do and so i started singing in a synagogue choir and then i went to a, a mm -hmm. i was like this is where i'm supposed to be mm -hmm. so i had a bar mitzvah in my 40s 42 um mm -hmm. and so that's 10 years ago so if that was 13 then i'm, I'm just barely <laughs> exactly exactly you know, just so you know, Amanda Ellison just had her bat mitzvah last year. Last hey, year? Yeah. Oh, wow. We talked yeah. at reunion at, about being involved in, yeah. and doing some of that. That's so, yeah, I actually to reach out to her. His, and then a couple months later, she had hers, which I think is just so amazing. So I just wanted to share that with you because I didn't know if you. Oh, thank you so much. I need to reach out to her and catch up with her. Um, so then the other amazing event was, um, five years ago, I had my bar mitzvah 10 years ago, five years ago, my husband, Andy and I got married and I kind of, it was kind of like, he was like, oh, we're together. Do we need to get married? Um, he doesn't have much family. He, he actually grew up in, in foster care for a while. So the idea of having a family focused mm -hmm. event is hard. Um, but, and then I was doing a production of company by Stephen Sondheim, marriage, the good, bad, the bad and the ugly. And I said, right. <laughs> and it's my first Sondheim show after all this time being obsessed with him since eighth grade. And, um, he said, yeah, I'd consider, I'd consider it. So I proposed and we got married at the Shakespeare garden mm -hmm. at Vassar. Um, Mark DeFoya oh, cooked pozole and sang. Chris Boson volunteered to, he was our wedding band oh for the God. reception. 
he just said, Hey, I really, I really want to do this for you. So he brought his, his, uh, band up for the, for the reception. Um, his mom and my mom are best friends over all these years. So, um, and, and the most amazing thing is after a, so many years of feeling disconnected and not having community, suddenly under the chuppah, which was over a sundial in the Shakespeare garden. So we put the chuppah up and there's people from all different parts of our lives, going back to the academy and people from different parts of our lives. It's so good to get married later in life. What happened was the chuppah's over the sundial, stopping the sun, mm. so time stopped. And my experience since that day under the chuppah is my depression or my struggles with compulsions and things. I can now time travel. I can go back to high school and think, oh, I felt miserable and lonely a lot of the time, but I can see that there was love around me that I just mm. couldn't take in at the time. Um, and, and rewrite it, rewrite my relationship with it. Um, you know, people talk about 12 step recovery. You're, rec you're able to recover your past that you couldn't, I wasn't equipped to let the good stuff in then. Um, and now I can go back and, and do that. That's the best thing about going to reunion. I think going back and seeing, seeing people and real, like, I was like, oh, nobody knew who I was and finding that like you know, the jocks were like remembering things and telling me stories mm -hmm. about myself that I don't remember. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was okay. And I can go back mm -hmm. and take that back in now. It's not gone. It sounds like the last decade has just been full of tremendous okay. healing. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yes. And you were, Absolutely. and it didn't yeah. just what drop in your lap. Like. I mean, you worked for it. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. The really cool thing right now is I'm back in New Mexico um, a couple of times a year, and it's amazing what's happening. I like ran away from New Mexico, from my broken family. I've been in New York for 30 years. Well, along the way, I've, I'm I've, um, getting certified oh, in the Feldenkrais well, I don't method. Know that. Jocelyn, which is that's you. You yes, mm -hmm. it's related to the Alexander mm -hmm. technique. It's similar. Um, it's a mindful movement mm. method and it uses neuroplasticity and lets it helps you move and find the tensions and the habits you're carrying, the emotional mm. habits as well as the physical ones. And it's a method that allows you to find those habits, be aware of them, and then reawaken your nervous system so it can learn new mm. things again and find new ways of working. So performers like Jocelyn and I found it in an acting mm -hmm. class use it to maximize performance. Also, people who have had surgery or the elderly use it as you as our bodies change. You can use it to restore to find new ways of balancing and continuing to be able to do things even as parts of our body stop. Working. And you're studying that in Santa Fe. Yep, I go back to Santa Fe twice a year, and the training is there. I see my dad. It's lovely to visit family when you're on your way to somewhere else. It takes the pressure. I can off. only stay for you. Well, <laughs> Um, but while I'm there, I've booked a bunch of performing. Um, I'm going to, at Thanksgiving, I'm going to be back there. And I booked a gig singing a Bach mass with the New Mexico cool. Performing Arts Center so Society. And I just booked a gig at the Santa Fe Playhouse in the April doing what the Constitution means to me. 
And full circle, Saturday I have a callback for their production of Sunday in the Park with George. Wow. Um, so, so I'm reconnecting with New Mexico. When you are performing that way, how much time do you have to spend getting ready for the actual show there? So do you have to actually go and spend a couple of months or three months rehearsing? Yeah, the rehearsal process, it'll be a four, a four or five week rehearsal mm -hmm. process. Um, so so if I book the other, if I book both shows, I'll be in Santa Fe for like six months next year. Wow. Does your husband come with you? Does he Is he able to travel? He comes out for a visit. When I'm Usually I've been out there a month. Mm -hmm. So he comes out. We don't go more, usually don't go more than two weeks without seeing each other. And this is great because he'll come out for Thanksgiving for this next mm -hmm. trip. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. I, for all the time I've been a New Yorker and people are like, you're such a New Yorker. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I guess I am. <laughs> but if I have any Zen on the subway, it's because of where we grew up and I have mountains and horizons in my heart. Yeah. And, and now I'm getting to spend time there. We have this, I, I, we'll see, but I have this idea of let's buy a house there and rent it out half the year during like opera mm -hmm. season. And then I'll be there the other half a year building my Feldenkrais mm -hmm. practice and my theater company. And so when, when my husband who works for the city department of ed city pension, uh, we need, I'm an actor and a Feldenkrais <laughs> practitioner. We need his pension. Yeah. Right. For sure. But seven years. <laughs> Seven years, like his pension kicks in. Let's go back. Yes, we'll see. So we're talking. Oh yeah, we're we're talking. He's he's open. You know, I you are not the first of our classmates to reflect on how wonderful it is to go back home now, because we just have a totally different relationship with it, and it really is a beautiful place. I mean, that landscape. Yeah. There is something about it that's very grounding love it yeah um, i feel like i need to at least quickly touch on my name change please yeah, oh yeah yeah i figured yeah so i had my bar mitzvah 10 years ago and picked a jewish a jewish name and i was like so so jonah it, it's it's got two meanings of course it's it's jonah the prophet from the bible who gets clear instructions about what he's supposed to do go to Nineveh and, and tell them to change their ways. And what does he do? He runs the opposite direction and ends up in a whale. And then when he does go back and actually, he's like, okay, okay, I gotta do this, I hear you. When he actually does his calling, he's the only prophet in the Bible where they're like, yeah, okay, we'll put on sackcloth, we'll repent, we'll do what you're saying, no problem. There's no arguing, there's no martyrdom, his own martyrdom, he's his own martyr. Um, a friend of mine who named her son Jonah calls him the prophet of second chances. <laughs> and given that since fifth grade, I've known I need to be doing theater. And yet it's taken me all this time to turn around and get headed the right yeah. direction. It, it just felt right. And then the other meaning is um, Yonah in Hebrew means dove. Like the dove in the Noah story. The flood has happened. There's no land in sight. There's no evidence that anything's out there. So he starts sending birds out there to look for evidence. And as somebody in his 50s who's launching a theater company and doing a solo show and starting my career now in certain ways, the idea of 
a bird going out there with no proof purely on faith and bringing back that olive branch. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that's, that's what mm -hmm. it means to me. And then when I meet people who knew the old me, it's sort of like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Jonah now. We both sort of have this question like, oh, well, then who are you now? Let's find it out. It opens up that conversation and maybe gives people a chance to question their assumptions about what they know about you. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, I, I got married um, for the second time about a year ago. Carlo was there. And I totally agree with you that getting married later in life is such a gift because you don't feel like you have to do it a certain way. You can do it your way. Mm -hmm. um, and you have the benefit of being able to pull together people that you've known over many decades. Um the first time yeah. around, I think more than half the guests were friends of our parents. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so it's yeah. very different later in your life when you get to do it and, and have the have the ceremony reflect who you are and what you want. Yeah. The coolest thing was that my family, I mean, my family's so scattered. And my brother and sister, Kathy, had been kind of estranged for a long time. They hadn't spoken since my nephew was born, my mm -hmm. sister's son, uh, Sam. He'd never, my brother had never met him. But they were all at the wedding. And we bent over backwards to make space for my mom and dad to have separate space and my brother and sister to have separate space. And at the wedding... Um, my brother met my nephew for the first time and my brother and sister started talking again, which was really cool because they had used to be really close and then they had this weird separation and they started talking mm -hmm. again. And then the most jaw dropping moment was when I'm standing around, there's dancing going on and I hear my mom say to my dad, may I have this dance? Aww. And my dad and I just both plots because she's very much like, I don't want to see your father, <laughs> like acrimony. And they dance together at my wedding. And then the next morning as we're going to breakfast, she, we're, we're walking, I'm walking there with my mother and she says, oh, your father has me so frustrated I could kill him. And it's like, okay, <laughs> the laws of physics still apply. The universe is not a different place. But for that moment, yeah. there could be a sense of family like we dream about. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. That, that sounds like a true, a true highlight. Um. Jonah, I'd love to ask you about your theater company and just what you're envisioning for it. What, I mean, I'd love, I don't know enough about when you start a theater company, there's probably some type of overarching mission or the type of theater you're going to do. Maybe, maybe not. I just would love for you to tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah. So it's called Sweet Pea Chamber Theater. And the vision is that we're a small ensemble, uh, like a chamber music group or like a band. Mm -hmm. Um, we train together every week, like uh, like a. It's a, I sort of go back and forth. Are we a dance company or are we a band? So we 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 meet every week. We're developing short repertoire, um, and the idea is that our work is portable. That it doesn't need a big theater with lights, but we can take it into community mm -hmm. settings. And um, it's it's letting as actors, you're often just throwing yourself at the wall and work for hire, and you don't get to own your own work. So we're looking for material that we really need to work on and stories we need to bring in the world. And then what pulls the trigger, are we going to produce it, is is there a community who needs it as much as, as we need it? Mm -hmm. 
so our our my first project actually is my solo show, which is um, uh, based on poetry that I read back in college in that AIDS and literature mm -hmm. class. It's called Love Alone, Elegies for Raj. And it's this poetry that the writer Paul Monet wrote when he lost his lover in 1987 over the five months to fight his way through grief back to life. And I read it when I was coming out, wrestling with AIDS and sexuality and who am I? And I've been carrying it around with me since I was 19. And when the pandemic hit, I was like, all right, it's time to do something with this. I've aged into the role. And there's a clear, my goal is to present that piece as an AIDS memorial to honor AIDS veterans. Mm -hmm. And so I play Paul, who's just lost his lover in this, this astonishing poetry of love and grief. It's also mm -hmm. the story of his radicalization, becoming politicized by mm -hmm. it. Um, our other piece, which is our first ensemble piece, is uh, an evening called Relative Differences, short plays about family and its complications. Mm -hmm. So we've got three 10-minute plays, several poems, um, a couple of songs, uh, and they're all just, and then we're, we're looking to perform it in community spaces with families. We've performed it in July at my synagogue. Mm -hmm. So we've got a story about a woman getting married and her father who left her when she was a child shows up at her wedding and wants to walk her down the aisle. And we've got another one about a woman who's been taking care of her father who's just passed, but she's given up like 15 years of her life to care for her ill father. And she's selling the house. And then this young man like takes an interest in her uh, romantically. Um, so it's this, she's like, do I get to have my life back after having given it up for so long? Um, and it's, it's to perform it in a community with families who are dealing with all those weird questions we deal with as families. Uh, and the other thing is it's meant to be live theater. It's about human contact, mm -hmm. the things that for as valuable as it is to, to make a movie or, or, or get traction on tech, there's something that happens in a 12-step room mm -hmm. at a bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. To stand in a room of people and read my three lines of Torah, along with nine other adult B mitzvah people, <laughs> but to be the center of attention and then to hand it off and share it for someone was so healing. And to see a play about someone who's wrestling with a difficult parent um, in a room where you, you, it's human. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, you, you can, you can feel something different happens when we're in our bodies. Um, so that's the goal of the company is to, to be portable and, and really remind us how to get out of our phones and, 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 feel our feelings and have our muscles wrestle with conflict so we can find the other side and have choices. That sounds amazing. I love that it just really feels like it's it's grounded in just the hum that human connection. I'm curious, does that mean that you always have the same group of people that you're working with on every production? And how does that work? And are you always the person choosing what's going to be performed or is it something that's collaborative the goal is for it to be an ensemble that uh hangs together um we train in some particular methods mm -hmm. um rooted in in some of the feldenkrais method and understanding of how emotions and physicality live together 
uh, also the Michael Chekhov acting method, which is psychophysical. Um, and so, so there's, there's some just vocabulary and being able to work quick because we train together. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also meant to be nimble and practical. So right now I've got, I, I started it by just doing an e-blast to all the actors I'd ever been in class with or shows with and said, hey, who wants to come play? Who wants to study? And out of that, we've now got a group of four of us who are committed and we've amazingly found three hours a week that we're all going to preserve against other commitments. Awesome. Uh, we've got this one program that we're, we're really looking to package so that we can we can book it places on a regular basis and it's a sustained effort. Uh, and then the next steps are for me to teach the methods as a way of one as an income stream and two as a way of inviting actors in who might want to become part of the company and find people who who are interested in a sustained relationship or because because if you're doing traditional industry, it's nothing, audition, audition, audition. You book something, your life goes on hold for four, six, however many weeks. Right. And then, and it all stops. This would be something that people can, we, ideally, I'd love to have a pool of actors who are like, okay, here's the project, who's available to commit to it for this time period. So we have sort of sprints or, or, or phases that people commit to. Uh, and then, um, you know, they can go off and do other work. Um, it's also meant to be friendly theater and performing is it's all consuming. It's so hard to have a family or juggle other things. Um, it's all or nothing. And so people go, 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 and then they burn out or drop out. And so I would love to be a place that brilliant actors who are busy raising a family can plug in and we've got some flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, with that bigger's not always better you know, finding a, a small communal environment that we can connect with an audience and really let them feel part of the process is the goal. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because it, it, the seeds of this were right there when I was casting my senior directed one act. <laughs> um, Mark makes fun of me because when we were having auditions, everyone was doing normal auditions. Here, read this part. And I'm like, have everyone sit in a circle and talk about, you know, talk about yourself. And then we did some reading, but it was this, he was like, who are you, Michael Bennett? Is this a chorus line? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I ended up with people who were not the usual suspect, suspects doing a beautiful job. Ken Pasternak, mm -hmm. I think it was the only play he did, maybe. Maybe he did one oh. other. And um, Michelle Millard. Huh. And if, I don't know, if, do you remember Michelle? Um, she sang in the, she was the year behind okay. us and okay. uh, right. She wasn't part of the usual crowd and they were perfect together. And uh, Mickey mm. came up to me afterwards and was like, I didn't really care for this play. And you got so much more out of it than I mm. could have. Mm. So in, in some way, again, all the seeds were mm -hmm. there. Um, and to go to reunion and reconnect and like, it just takes time for things to cultivate and find the air they need to grow. Absolutely. And I feel like, I totally agree with you that it does take time and I am so aware of that now and I hate to sound like the old lady at 52, but I feel like the last <laughs> decade has been so much about shifting my perspective about what's valuable to me, what's worth um, going out on a limb for, um, and 
earlier in life, it was so much more about like what's expected of me by other people or hmm. by the world or my own expectations. And um, it's, I totally understand that, that shift that happens. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. I wish I could have shifted earlier, but I don't think that's the way we're built. Well, I will say that every time I hit a milestone birthday, when I hit 30, I was like, oh, thank God I don't have to be in my 20s again. <laughs> Same thing when I hit 40. 50 was a little different. 50, yeah, I was like, oh, the clock's ticking a little bit. <laughs> like 50, I'm like, oh, if I really want to start a theater company and the time that I now know it takes to build something and build an mm -hmm. audience, now's the time. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, my mantra, though, it started in 12-step. My mantra has been, the world is a much weirder and gentler place than it is in my imagination and my fear. Mm, absolutely. So mm -hmm. aside from your work and Andy's got work and there's just all the day-to-day -day maintenance of life, what are the things that you and Andy enjoy doing just for fun in New York City? Well, um, Sondheim continues to be a theme. Um, I don't know if people know this. I, I was into theater in middle school, but I wasn't into musicals. I played mm -hmm. play, classical piano and sang in choirs, but they were totally separate. And then I taped off of American Playhouse. I taped, oh, there's a play on, and it was Sunday in the Park with George. It was summer between eighth and ninth grades. I went to um, I was in math class in summer school because I was struggling with Mr. Suchland. I would come home from summer school math class and I was obsessed. I had to have these songs. So I had, I put the VHS cassette in our VCR and on our little tape deck, I was using the pause button to create an album of the mm -hmm. songs. The end of the summer comes, I go, I, I see Mark and I'm like, oh my God, Mark, I found the most amazing thing this summer and I have this cassette of Sunday in the Park with George that mm -hmm. I've made. And I, I've i never heard of Sondheim. I've never really watched music. He's like, that's great. Why didn't you buy the cast album? <laughs> cast album? <laughs> what is this cast album? I immediately go to the public library and through high school, on my way from high school driving to college, I had recorded from the, the vinyl copies of all the Sondheim cast albums. I'd made uh -huh. tapes with all the skips and scratches from the library record. I listened to that as my dad drove us across country. I listened to the entire Sondheim oeuvre. Oh totally obsessed. In our wedding, uh, I knew Andy was the right guy for me when we went to see a concert version of Merrily We Roll Along. And he likes theater and he likes musicals, but I'm the one who's introducing him to Sondheim. He turns to me at the end of the show and he's like, can we see that again? <laughs> and I knew, I knew he was the, I, I knew before then, but I really knew this, this was it. This was the wedding of, this was the marriage of my dreams. So just, we spent the last three weeks catching up on the new Sondheim shows. We saw Merrily We Roll Along. Um, we saw uh, The Frogs, which is an obscure thing that he did. And then we just saw the last show, Here We Are, with Mark and my friend Bronwyn from college, who's also a Sondheim nut. Um, so we're, we're big theater. He, he loves to go see the theater. He's totally supportive of that. And um, I don't know, we've got our, we've got our nerd Netflix that we watch. Um, he cooks. I'm so spoiled. He goes and works a full day for the public schools running literacy programs across the city. 
And what does he want to do to when he comes home to relax? He cooks for me. Nice. I'm so spoiled. Yeah, it is. That is. <laughs> disgusting. I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> Live theater and having your husband cook for you. Oh. <sighs> you are living the dream. Literally. I'm dreaming about moving back to New Mexico, but we just spent three weeks seeing the latest fantastic productions of Sondheim. So I'm beginning yeah. to feel a little torn. Yeah. yeah. New York, you can't beat it for the theater. There's just nothing like it. Maybe London, but I don't know. Well, I think we should awesome. do our tour back to high school. I think right? we should too. You've talked a little bit about reflections on yourself looking back in high school. Is there anything else you'd like to share just as you think back on the the Scott before you yes. were Jonah? That's um, right back in high school and what you remember about yourself, what it felt like to be you. Well, so it's so funny because as I've like tried another career and then come back to performing, like I found who I was there. Mm. Certainly theater, certainly literary magazine, uh, music too, um, you know, singing in choir and taking piano lessons growing up. I was terrified to, to do something wrong, to mess it up. So I would only do things publicly or visibly if I could figure out how to do it on my own. And I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm pretty bright. I can figure out a lot of things how to do on my own. But you miss so much if you're not able to put yourself out there and make mistakes. Or, or tr you know, tr I, didn't, I didn't like myself or trust myself enough to let myself make mistakes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and... But all the judgment that I was projecting onto everyone else about being a, a theater nerd or not athletic enough or uncomfortable in my body, that was all me, you know. Um, and uh, it's so, again, it's so cool to like reconnect with folks and be like, oh, they, they like me. They saw me. They remember mm -hmm. me. I had a whole box of awards that you get growing up, piano competitions and I was in Cub Scouts for a year and had like won a design award for my Pinewood Derby car. And I looked at that and I thought, why, why didn't this, any, any of this pay off in the sense of self-worth? Hmm. I was sort of cut off from that, except in theater, except those thespian points. I was like, yeah, I had more thespian points than anyone. That means something. Hmm. I've just come through such a, to such a different place to accept myself that it's sort of weird to, it's hard to go back and figure out what was going on then. Adolescence. No, no yeah. need to spend too much time digging. You've got, you've got exciting stuff coming. Yeah. It is for sure. For sure. All right. Here's to the late bloomers. Totally. So let's get, let's do our, our flash round. All right. And uh, the first question you know, which is, who was your high school crush? So I'm going to name two people. Uh, my, my serious crush was um, a friend of mine from Sandia High School, Doug Greth. And we met at a German language weekend at, at, at um, Ghost Ranch. I got off the bus and was reading It by Stephen King mm -hmm. and walked into the room. And Doug was there reading Battlefield Earth, this other giant science fiction tome. We sort of looked at each other. And didn't need to say a word. We we're like, we have to finish our chapter before we introduce ourselves. <laughs> and so he was my nerd friend. And nothing happened. He's not gay. But I just 
my heart, like I would go over to his house and we'd like watch, watch, uh, Star Trek, the next generation and eat frozen pizzas. Cause we didn't have those in my house. He had them at his house. And then we'd like go and lay on the golf course and look up at the stars and talk like science fiction. And I just, my heart was so full with wanting to like be with him. My other, I'm not sure if crush is the right word. Yeah. We'll call it a crush. Kurt Brinkman, eighth grade. He was much more mature than the rest of yeah. us. And it sort of, he really challenged my ability to stay in denial about being gay. <laughs> he was good looking. For sure. Oh. All right. So question number two, munch pudding or veal birds? Discuss. Oh, chocolate munch all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. This is sort of a weird question, but we've been asking it and I've loved hearing how people have answered it. What was your signature style if you had one or clothing brand? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have a brand. I was very caught up since I was a lifer. I really internalized. You can't wear jeans. You must wear a collared shirt. Mm -hmm. I, I could never call Mickey Mickey. He was Mr. P. That was the closest I could get. I, I internalized that best little boy in the world syndrome. I like internalized that. There was a brief moment when I was in ninth grade where I was going to like shop and find my style. And I bought this pair of white shorts with suspenders and peach and white striped t-shirt. It was totally adorable and totally right. gay. I wore it to school once and then I put it away. Mm. I put it away and I, I had, oh, where was it from? Like those, the cardigans. I wore the floppy cardigans. By, by senior year, I plugged in enough. But, but that's another area where I was very shut down. <laughs> what car did you drive in high school and how did it meet your eyes? You remember the car, the 71 yellow Volkswagen bus. No way. Right? So cool. I don't right? remember. This is awesome. Yep. 71. My parents bought it. The, uh, the, they were supposed to pick it up the day I was born and they got busy. <laughs> so it was a 71 Volkswagen bus, vinyl seats, no air conditioning, no power steering. How did it meet its demise? Um, so my dad and my brother both like fix cars and take things apart. So it, I think it died a peaceful death when, when my sister Kathy and I both graduated, um, my brother took it and drove it to Minnesota and he kept it running for a long time. And then finally it just cost more to buy a part than to, you know, it just wasn't worth it. So they finally sold it for parts, mm -hmm. but it, it had an honorable, a long and life and an honorable death. Love it. Nice. Nice. What song or band would be on the soundtrack for your high school? Experience and feel free to include show tunes if you so wish. <laughs> so, I mean, that's obvious, but we've covered that territory. No, the the album that I listened to from oh, probably junior year until I graduated from high school, like many, many nights I'd go to sleep to it, was um, Kate Bush, Hounds of Love. Jocelyn Swigger and Laura Hood turned me on to it. I was such a classical geek and they like have to get into pop music. And I would say the song that that really resonates for me today is The Big Sky. 
Kate Bush is having her moment. She's come back around. God bless. So I feel vindicated. <laughs> she too. She's such an out there performer, mm-hmm. and I kind of felt like, um, like I, like I couldn't. She was expressing something that I wasn't allowed to express. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other song of hers that um, I listened to so much was um, the song she did with uh, Peter Gabriel. Don't mm-hmm. give up. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful song. All right. What high school teacher had the greatest influence on you? So again, many John Riley was my sixth grade advisor and made me feel seen when I was dealing with that. Um, Mickey, of course, I spent so much time in the theater. Um, Nancy Spencer, uh, she was my, she, we were in the same advisee group, but the person I really, who really made space for the me I'm, I'm becoming now is Miriam McClooney. Mm. Um, I had her for 10th grade English, I think. And um, she connected me with poetry. You know, we'd had a big poetry mm. unit and I read all of Margaret Atwood's poetry up to that mm. time. And it just made space. I wrote things. I wrote about my life that I was cut off from, but somehow with her, she made space that I could write about my parents' divorce Mm -hmm. or write about my, my longing to pray that I couldn't do. Um, and it's so, there's just that it was with her that I had access to all those things I couldn't talk Mm -hmm. about. And she just matter of factly knew that that part, she didn't push or ask about Mm -hmm. it, but she lived there in poetry land. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, thanks to her, we both lettered. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> For the right? We lettered in literary magazine. <laughs> you That's know, so cool. so I didn't remember yeah, that you were amazing. in the Spencer's advisory group as well. So no wonder I feel like we had so much time together in high school because creative writing. Did you take Shakespeare with Ms. McClooney as well? I didn't. Okay, well, I, I was a Miss McClooney um, super fan also. She just had a way of very gently being herself and also seemingly amused in a very loving way about all the students. There was just a quiet, yeah, there's a quiet and a calm in her room that, you know, you know, Nancy Spencer was vigorous, you know, humanities. I was in humanities with the brothers bull and that was like this whole scene, but she had, there's just this calmness yeah. that, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I associate it. It's what I find it, the spirituality that I didn't really mm-hmm. find other places there. I miss her. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't keep in touch with her. She was my advisor when I was a 10th grade. I liked mm-hmm. her so much. She was so great. 
Okay. What was your favorite hangout spot, either on campus or off campus? Oh, clearly the green room. I was to say, did we even need to ask? But. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> also the site of, of much drama. The other great story is the day that, um, and this will actually tie into one of the later questions, the day that my sister wanted to go home and I wanted to hang out with my friends. We had one car and I had the keys. So she came in and said she wanted to go and I was just being an annoying big brother. And so she took, she had a wrench that she used to tune her harp and she threw it across the room and hit me in the head in front of all my friends. To this day, when I mentioned my sister, Mark reminds me of this incident. Who knew that a harp, uh, a harp, uh, wrench could be such a uh, an instrument of pain and death and right you think harp delicate loveliness and then you watch the harpist throw the harp over their shoulder <laughs> like oh don't mess with the harpist yeah. take you out <laughs> what if anything do you regret from high school and that's my regret that i was not kinder and more thoughtful and a better brother to my sister. Aww. Who, by the way, has completely shown me up. She, of, of all three of us kids, she is the best of us. She's a physicist. Aww. She's a harpist. She has this amazing family. She's on the board of her church. She's, she, is, she had a, a Fulbright in Prague. Um, and we went and visited to just piggyback on her success. Um, she is... However awful I was to her, you know, and it's hard to be coming behind an, a bigger brother or a big sister. Whatever trauma she went through, she has more than made up for it and far surpassed me. And so well, as we learned at the Academy, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Now, she probably has you to thank for her greatness. I, I say nothing. <laughs> I love how proud you are of her. If you could go back in time and tell your high school stuff, Something about the future, what would be? You're okay. You're okay. It's going to be all right. The world is a kindler, it's a weirder and kinder and gentler place than you imagined it is. All right. Last question. What would be the title of your high school memoir? Still Waters. Oh, say more. Oh, still waters run deep. The stuff that's under the surface. You're enough, and you're more than you can imagine. Um, you just gotta, you just gotta get curious and let it out. Mm -hmm. Oh, this has been so great talking with you. I just am so inspired and moved and loved every everything you had to say. Me too, <laughs> and I'm so happy for you that you found peace and someone in your life who you can enjoy it with and work that you're excited about, you know, it's, it's really wonderful. Well, thank you. And, and everyone's saying this, this is such an extraordinary exercise in time travel and being a whole person. Like we're not just our accomplishments, we're whole people. Um, and to make space, not just for us to talk, but for all of us to be listening. It's such an extraordinary thing. Every time I get off these calls, I'm like, I'm going to be a better human. <laughs> oh, 
it is really inspiring. Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing so much of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. We can't wait to see you next year. Right? I know. Looking forward to it. And um, stay tuned. There'll be, if folks are in New Mexico and maybe I, you know, come, come, let's, let's make community. Let's perform. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to these big plans for a reunion. I think Chris Icebox is going to do some brewing with us. I think you and Bruce should have us, and maybe Mark too, should have us do some kind of like improv um, theater kinds of things. Or you can adapt <laughs> these podcasts for the stage. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's interesting. That's really, that's really interesting. I remember at the last... At the last reunion, when I brought all these, this stack of old poetry that I'd found. That was the best. I already talked about that before you got on. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we need to have a, a, a poet, like we need to have people write new poems for the next reunion. Oh, yeah. All right. It's cooking. Right. I'm looking forward Thanks. to it. Thanks so much. Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.